Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the center in person and online. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. Last week, we hosted an interesting discussion on the Constitution as it was written and how it has evolved, with two authors who have different takes on that evolution, Professors Wilfred Codrington III of Brooklyn Law School and Charles R. Kessler of Claremont McKenna College. Professor Codrington unveils his new book, The People's Constitution, 200 Years, 27 Amendments, and the Promise of a More Perfect Union. He tells the story of constitutional change and amendments that he says have reshaped our founding document in order to create a more perfect union. Professor Kessler presented his book, Crisis of the Two Constitutions, The Rise, Decline, and Recovery of American Greatness. He centers the Constitution as written in 1787 versus what he calls the progressive or living Constitution and argues that the two are at odds. National Constitution Center President Jeffrey Rosen moderates. This conversation was streamed live on October 26, 2021. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Hello, friends. Welcome to the National Constitution Center and to today's convening of America's Town Hall. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of this wonderful institution. It's such a pleasure to welcome you, uh, Wilfred Codrington and Charles Kessler. Your two books are fascinating because they're both about constitutional history and how we should think about the present, although they uh, approach it uh, from different perspectives. So I want to begin just by uh, inviting each of you to put your important arguments on the table. And uh, Professor Codrington, if if we can begin with you. At the end of your book, you identify five factors that have coincided with increased interest in the Article Five Amendment process over American history, which include discontent over Supreme Court decisions, transformational social change, the upheavals of war and other crises, policy experimentation in the states, and extreme political polarization. Uh, There's a lot there, but tell us how those five factors tend to explain the big movements of constitutional change around the time of the founding, the Civil War and the Progressive Era, and how they may apply today. Yes. Well, thank you for having me back, Jeff. It's great to be here. And thanks to the staff of the National Constitution Center for putting on this and many wonderful programs. Um, and, and so I think you did a great job of just laying out the, the five uh, things that uh, we see as patterns or catalysts for constitutional change and specifically for formal constitutional change. That's your textual change to the Constitution through Article 5, which is the amending clause. Um, and so these catalysts are just these combination of things that present themselves, these situations uh, right in the lead up to or during major amending periods. So one that you mentioned is uh, Supreme Court decisions, controversial, unpopular ones. And uh, I've written a piece actually recently in The Atlantic explaining these a little bit more concisely than the book does. But uh, one of those things is we see that. And it has the possibility of opening up uh, the Constitution for amendment, because as we know, whatever the Supreme Court says on the Constitution is the last word. Or so we can test that in our book. What the people say is actually the last word, and they do that by amending the Constitution. So we saw that in the past before with decisions like the Dred Scott decision, which, you know, like sort of led to the Civil War, or one of the important events that led to the Civil War. Uh, In the Progressive Era, there was Pollock versus Farmer Loans Trust, which the Supreme Court said that Congress had no power to impose a federal income tax. And we amended the Constitution, adding the 16th Amendment to say, yes, actually we do. And that was an important amendment because it brought us into modernity, enabling us to finance complex government operations. Uh, We saw it again in the civil rights era with Oregon versus Mitchell. And that was a case where the Supreme Court said that Congress doesn't have the power to lower the voting age to 18. And that's what we did. We amended the Constitution in the 1970s to lower the voting age. So that's a big one. And I say that that's a big one because you see them in every amending period and they have the tendency to open up an entire period for amendment. But there are others. So... um, There's political experimentation in the states. There's foment, sort of agitation, trying to experiment with things that um, states can do, but the Constitution doesn't necessarily uh, allow or permit or, or, or accommodate. So we know, for example, abolition was a movement that started in the states before we got the 13th Amendment. 
We know that suffrage was happening in the states before we got the, uh, the, the 19th Amendment. We know a lot of things that we've gotten in the Constitution have been things that the states have started and the Constitution showed up. And the other, as you said, uh, transformation, social change. We see this often uh, with sort of uh, new demographics and innovation and technology and a changing, an econo uh, changing economy. Uh, you notice uh, you um, mentioned intense political polarization. We're in a period right now of an intense political polarization. We saw those before. At one point during the Civil War, it led to a complete uh, dissolution of the war where you had uh, radical Republicans sort of running the agenda for constitutional reform. But it also happened during the progressive area where you had this sort of coalition, this realignment of parties and power, which allowed uh, amendments to come through. And the last one is uh, sort of a sense of secure insecurity. And this is something that happens during periods of war, uh, during economic downturns and recession, during a pandemic. You know, this is not the only pandemic where amending the Constitution could possibly uh, on the minds of Americans. You know, we had the uh, pandemic, which was occurring when uh, prohibition and suffrage was sort of the movements of the day. Um, and so this is what we try to do, look at the different periods of history, the four different periods of constitutional change, and distill those uh, factors, those patterns, those catalysts that have fomented and facilitated constitutional change. Thank you so much for uh, distilling the arguments so clearly. Uh, Charles Kessler, in your new book, The Crisis of the Two Constitutions, you contrast two constitutions, which you said have been at... Uh, loggerheads with each other throughout American history. One is the Founders' Constitution of 1787, grounded in natural rights and the practical wisdom of the Declaration of Independence. And the second is the Progressive Constitution, which you say is based not on equal individual rights or on changing natural rights, but on rights that travel in groups and vary with the historical moment. Tell us more about your uh, understanding of the Founders' Constitution and the Progressive Constitution. Okay, thank you, uh, Jeff, and thanks also to the National Constitution Center for this uh, kind invitation. It's good to see you again. It's it's good to meet uh, Professor Codrington, and I've, I've looked at your book. I haven't read it all, but I intend to. It looks very interesting and very well done from the parts I've seen. Um, uh, I argue that uh, if, if you look at American constitutional history at large, you can see sort of two major divisions. Um, up to, uh, let's say, the beginning of the progressive era, you have uh, the, the practical, legal, uh, and philosophical, you might say, dominance of the, of the Founders' Constitution and its moral and political and intellectual presuppositions. And beginning with the progressive era, you have an, a sort of new American political science that Woodrow Wilson was a very important part of, Herbert Crowley, um, Teddy Roosevelt, in his own way, he was not a political scientist, uh, as Wilson was, but he was up to date on the latest um, political science in America. And the new political science regarded itself essentially as post-constitutional. They weren't exactly anti-constitutional. They were not against the 1787 Constitution as amended, which they thought was fine for its time. It was the very best in 18th century constitutionalism. But they thought that the world had changed and political science had changed. The needs of America had changed. And so you needed a, a, a looser, more evolutionary form of uh, constitutional architecture. Uh, and this was what Wilson and many, many of the other progressives called the living constitution. Um, when we hear about the living constitution today, it's usually in connection with a Supreme Court nomination, when there's a debate about what is the judicial philosophy of the nominee. Uh, but when Wilson and the originators of, the, uh, of this concept used the term, they didn't confine it to the judiciary. They were talking about a way of, of um, approaching politics at large, executive power, legislative power judicial power, and the new forms of mixed power that came to be called, you know, the, uh, the bureaucracy or the administrative state in Washington, uh, centered in Washington, which combined legislative, executive, and judicial power in novel ways. Um, they did this with the best of intentions. They intended to solve America's 
new social problems, its burgeoning social uh, disorders, whether it was, uh, you know, new large-scale corporations um, uh, and, uh, and the problems of big cities, uh, of l- large numbers of immigrants coming all at once um, from Southern and, and Eastern Europe and so forth. They had a, an, an array of social problems which were in some sense new, uh, which they thought you needed in a in a way a kind of new uh, constitutional arrangement to deal with. Um, it required precisely the kind of mixture of powers that Madison was very much against, and that the authors of the Federalist Papers thought would 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 really uh, be tyrannical or would eventually become somewhat despotic. Um, and so we have a kind of um, somewhat incoherent constitutional structure now because we have this informal um, Darwinian kind of constitution from the progressive era overlying um, and, uh, and competing in a way with the formal constitutional structures uh, of the old constitution. One is, so to speak, uh, more conservative. Uh, the progressive constitution is obviously more liberal. And part of the bitterness and the... Um, um, lack of moderation in American politics today, I think, comes because we have these, we're sort of, we have two constitutions for one nation. Um, and that that sets up um, a kind of, of um, fundamental political conflict that is very hard to manage and very hard to moderate. Thank you very much for that and for summing up your argument so clearly. Because both of you have distilled such clear arguments, I, I, I'd love to ask each of you to to react to the other. So Wilfred, if I may, Charles says, as you just heard, that the progressive constitution regarded itself as post-constitutional. It needed looser forms of constitutional structure, new ways of looking at executive, congressional, and administrative power. And this new uh, post-constitutional vision uh, competes with the framers' constitution and is responsible for much of our clashes in America today. Do you agree or disagree with that as a, as a historical and narrative statement? Yeah, so um, I, I think that's interesting. I, I haven't really, um, so I, I've read your book as well, so thank you. Um, uh, um, you know, I, I wouldn't call the modern sort of view of constitutionalism post-constitutional. Um, what, what I would say is that, and in, in what we argue in the book, are there these periods? And, and it's interesting because Professor Kessler used the word tectonic plates. We also use the word tectonic plates as a, as a metaphor for what's going on. But there are these periods where you have these um, sort of situations, these factors, these elements out there that are sort of rubbing up against each other and create the, the, the sort of potential and the opportunity for constitutional renewal. And so uh, Professor Kessler said that it's sort of a dichotomy, these two constitutions, but we look at it very much in four different ways. So I wouldn't say that there's this old constitution. The old original constitution, as we know, was what was adopted in the 18th century. But at each generation, we added to that. And, And sometimes we actually had to subtract from it. Right. So the first generation, the big thing we had to do from the framers constitution was to subtract slavery and racial subjugation. And we did that in a big way. And, you know, and and that also repudiated this sort of idea of uh, Madison's uh, original framework, because with the 14th Amendment, we know that we had this reorientation of power. We had this rebalancing of what federalism looks like, where we now put more power into a vigorous federal government and, and, and took power and put, put controls over the state so they couldn't uh, slip back up into this state of slavery and subjugation. So, so that was the first sort of um, overlay on the framers' constitution. The second overlay, and I think this is where um, Professor Kessler picks up, he, called, he says this is the more modern version, was the progressive era. And the progressive era was um, largely a product of these dynamic social movements. So your movement for temperance and your movement for suffrage and, your, and, and sort of populism going on and, and, and also pushing it back against corporate abuse and political um, and, and public 
corruption, right? And so, yes, what they tried to do is to push back on this. And one of the ways they did that was through the 17th Amendment. So that way it gave the people the power to choose their senators, as opposed to allowing what were then often corrupt state legislators to choose the senators. Um, and, and, and as I said, um, they pushed back with um, the prohibition, which was failed, but meant to be this sort of novel purifying force in politics and suffrage, including women into the American people, finally. And then there was uh, there was um, also the sort of development of the administrative state that, that we look at as sort of a failed era for uh, formal constitutional reform, but it did change the Constitution nevertheless. So the Constitution is changing even when we don't change it directly. And this happens, again, during through Supreme Court decisions, through big politics. Um, the New Deal era was one of those big sort of informal amending periods. And then we get to the civil civil rights era again. And that, again, smaller, smaller amendments, formal at least, um, but a lot of the energy there was also to sort of um, repudiate some of the, the failures of the past um, eras of the Constitution. And this one really was to bring to the surface, again, the promises of the Reconstruction era, which had been ignored for eight, nine decades uh, when Jim Crow was the law of the land in parts of the country. Um, and so, yes, there, there is this sort of base of the sort of Madisonian framework of the Constitution that we got in the 18th century. Um, but with every, uh, every big amending period, we added to that and to make it a more democratic, more promising, uh, more inclusive document that was better suited to govern the American people at the time. Thank you very much for that. And thank you for identifying that important point that, uh, as you say, progressives viewed the New Deal as an informal moment of constitutional transformation, even though it didn't culminate in a formal amendment and conservatives dispute that the New Deal was a legitimate act of constitutional amendment because there was no formal one and uh, much of the battle over the legitimacy of the administrative state focuses on, on that question. Charles Kessler, if I, if I may um, ask you to respond not to that point, uh, but to um, Wilfred Codrington's historical claim that interest in Article V amendments over time has coincided with periods that include discontent over Supreme Court decisions, transformational social change, the upheavals of war, policy experimentation in the states, and extreme political polarization. Just as a narrative and, and historical uh, statement, do, do you agree or disagree with, with that account? I think that's a very good and accurate account. I don't really have any disagreements with it. Um, I think it is interesting, though, that, uh, well, one thing that is very nice about his book uh, is that Professor Codrington notices precisely the way that the emergence of these amendments over time, and often in groups of them all at once or in a very close proximity to each other, is tied into the rhythms of American politics. Um, and it's it, it's in a way... Um, uh, a kind of tribute, maybe a backhanded one to the framers' wisdom in making it difficult to amend the Constitution, so that when you do, you sort of get pent up political and social forces. Um, they have to chew on it a while and figure out what is what amendments are really needed and which ones can we uh, find a supermajority of the country and the Congress to support, so that it's a kind of combination of the um, of uh, a willingness to change, an openness to change in the Constitution itself. The framers didn't, after all, think the Constitution was perfect and should be unchangeable. That Article 5 is in the Constitution precisely because they foresaw that defects would need to be corrected, would need to be discovered and corrected, and that conditions would change, and that some form of, of uh, very deliberate um, and well-considered and occasional constitutional amendment would be necessary. They were, they were very realistic about that. And his book nicely shows how, you know, in episode after episode, you get these, these, um, um, uh, well, you know, well considered and in a way, uh, mutually supporting, uh, bursts of amendments 
to be added to the Constitution. But the interesting thing I would say is how we, in the 20th century, those bursts of amendments have stopped. And where you, would have, where you would have expected another couple of amendments to be added precisely in the New Deal, as uh, Professor Codrington was, was saying, you get, you know, you don't get one. You get what FDR calls the second Bill of Rights. I mean, he had really worked this out. He had a list of what would have been, presumably, constitutional amendments in an earlier day, a bunch of them, though he would have offered and probably been able to pass at least many of them through his heavily democratic congresses uh, in those days and through this and perhaps through the states as well. Um, he'd never offered them as uh, formal constitutional amendments. And that I think is very revealing because it shows in a way that if you have a living constitution, you don't need to go through the, the complexities of the formal amendment process. The idea is that the real and increasingly relevant constitution is a very flexible one, an unwritten one, one that can change as circumstances change, and you don't need formal amendments to an informal constitution, which is the real distribution of political power at any given time in American politics. So whereas the founders thought the constitution had to be above normal politics, had to float above statute law in order to keep politics within certain moral and constitutional boundaries. The new understanding really is that um, it's not government that sets, it, it's not the constitution that sets the limits on government. It's in a way government that sets the parameters of the constitution. And you don't need formal amendments uh, to an informal constitution. And so the second bill of rights, which was perfectly set up, to, to add to the, you know, enumerated amendments um, gets uh, uh, realized by, prog- by the addition of programs to the federal government. You get, you know, the, the right to health care, the right to a job. Uh, all of these um, new socioeconomic rights in the second Bill of Rights are fulfilled by federal government programs, budget items, not by constitution- a change in the constitutional writ uh, per se. And I think that shows you we're in a different era um, constitutionally than any time in the 19th century or in the first, say, two decades of the 20th century. And and, and that leads me to ask uh, you, uh, Wilfred Codrington, are we in a different stage than we were at the end of the 19th century? You end your book by saying that this looks a lot like the Gilded Age, a time when politics... Uh, were divided between that era's 1% and farmers and exploited laborers, and the sense of urgency gave rise to a push for constitutional reform. It's reasonable to anticipate that this time of partisan gridlock, you say, will someday give way to a new governing consensus. Only time will tell whether the American people will be inspired, as previous generations have been, to form the political coalitions needed to foster the next range of constitutional change. I mean, the obvious question, of course, is, is there doesn't seem to be any chance of a meaningful constitutional consensus on the horizon that could lead to a new amendment, even the amendments about which there seem to be the most consensus as a policy matter, like term limits for Supreme Court justices, which our constitution drafting project at the Constitution Center found uh, the conservative and progressive teams agreeing about, has seemed to have no chance of passing because of the difficulty of getting stuff through, you know, Congress to be proposed or the states to be ratified. So the, so the, the, the question is, do you believe that we will see constitutional amendments following uh, the factors that you say at every time previously in American history have led to formal constitutional amendments in the past. Yeah, so I, I just want to make it clear that, I mean, I, I think some people tend to look at history and think that the future is a foregone conclusion. And that's not the position that we take. Um, what we do is try to show the similarities that have existed in other times leading up to constitutional change and say that, hey, this is this is not reason to be despondent. This is not reason to lose all hope. Um, know that in periods that have been far more difficult than this, you know, the Civil War was far more difficult than this. The, the sort of early founding period where we could have lost the Constitution without constitutional amendments 
far more difficult than this. And yes, it, it's it's pretty bad out there, I think. Um, people are understandably frustrated with the conditions today, the social conditions, the political conditions. Um, and so what we tried to do is to say, but we've been here before. Um, and so it's not a foregone conclusion that will take, uh, take the sort of seize the mantle here and, and push for that change. But I do think some of the things we're seeing today are eerily reminiscent of past periods. So I spoke about uh, the, the, the sort of social movements that were going on during the progressive era. Well, we're seeing robust social movements today as well. And not all of them have constitutional change on their mind. You know, we, we've seen the sort of uh, nation facing its really reckoning with um, anti-Black uh, politics and anti-Black discrimination. Um, and you've seen the Black Lives Matter movement come up, and that is a robust movement. We saw in the wake of the 2008 recession uh, that you had the Occupy Wall Street movement come about and sort of talk about, highlight the disparities between the 99 and the 1%. You've seen the sort of robust women's movement with the marches like that now are almost common, um, taking to the streets and to the mall and sort of demanding equality. And, and that one, I would say, is very much aligned with a push for a constitutional amendment, specifically the Equal Rights Amendment, which failed uh, when it was initially uh, uh, passed by Congress and sent to the states. So we're seeing that. We're seeing this sort of wide chasm between the haves and the have-nots. We're seeing political polarization and swings in control of the government. You know, in the lead up to the progressive era, in the uh, 1876 and again in 1888, you had two times where you had the Electoral College misfire, not dissimilar to what we got twice in two decades, um, in 2000 and 2016. So I think it is difficult, um, but the goal of this book is to show that it has always been difficult, it has always been perceived as difficult, and then when things seemed impossible, uh, people ha who had been laying the ground for decades um, actually found an opening where they could uh, turn those projects that makes the country better and more democratic and more governable, turn those projects into something real and, and, and changing the Constitution along the way. Charles Kessler, has the Constitution become harder to amend than the framers anticipated? I, I mentioned a few amendments about which there seems to be broad uh, conservative and liberal agreement. The possible term limits for Supreme Court justices is one. The other thing that our Constitution drafting teams agreed on, the conservatives and progressives agreed on an electoral college amendment that would have a national popular vote. And indeed, such an amendment came within a few votes in the Senate of being proposed in 1971 and was endorsed by both political parties, but was thwarted just by a couple of Southern senators. So do you think there's a case that um, it's now impossible to get amendments about topics for which there's broad bipartisan consensus, or is this the way the Constitution is supposed to work and has always worked in terms of the difficulty of formal amendments? Well, you have to um, you have to come to some consensus before you can have an amendment. I mean, you need, you know, classically two thirds of each House of Congress and three quarters of the states to agree to it. And that's a consensus. Um, but right now we're very far from such a consensus and, and things are complicated because the the uh, standards by which you evaluate constitutionality differ basically from the older constitution to the modern progressives constitution. We're really talking about competing constitutions rather than simply ways to interpret the same uh, written document. And that's, that's why, I mean, after all, the, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, which Professor Codrington rightly uh, pointed to as perhaps the most important of all the amendments. Uh, after the Bill of Rights, and maybe even including the Bill of Rights to a certain extent, um, in our constitutional history, that consensus was only possible after the Civil War, as a result of the Civil War. Uh, one side had to win, and the other side had to lose, um, you know, uh, uh, profoundly, um, in order to create the conditions of political consensus that enabled the 13th, 14th, and uh, especially the 15th Amendment, 
uh, to pass. And then those amendments had to run a gauntlet of judicial interpretation, which uh, in some ways was the last gasp of the of the pre-Civil War amendment uh, constitution coming to life um, again. So uh, I think uh, Professor Codrington and I might disagree about how to understand those amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th. I would understand them as basically, I think, Lincoln and the party of Lincoln would have understood them to be really fulfillments of the anti-slavery premises of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, um, rather than a repudiation of the original Constitution. And that's a very big question, highly controverted still today. It was controversial in the the 1860s. Uh, It's certainly controversial today. Uh, but you can learn a lot from looking at the terms of that uh, controversy. But I think today, um, I mean, the case of the ERA is interesting. Here is an amendment which fit the bill f- uh, for, um, uh, you know, the, for, from Professor Codrington's point of view, it should have been added to the Constitution in the uh, 1970s instead of being stopped just short of being added to it. It was inclusive, it was progressive, it was the things which Professor Codrington, I think, uh, regards as good uh, constitutionally. Um, but it failed the test of popular consent. It couldn't, get, it couldn't get the three quarters of the states that it needed in time. The last amendment to be added to our Constitution, the 27th Amendment, was, was <laughs> initially proposed by James Madison. It was one of the original group of amendments out of which came the Bill of Rights in the first Congress of the United States. It took 200 plus years to get it added uh, to the Constitution. That is a remarkable occurrence, but it does suggest that we've sort of run out of contemporary amendments uh, that can run uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, that can survive the process because there is no, um, sufficient consensus, I think, for them. So I, I would be somewhat pessimistic to answer your question that any any of these, any of the amendments that the NCC has looked at um, is probably likely to be added anytime soon, although the judicial one uh, of them all, I think, might have the, better, the best chance. Um, but that it's so caught up in the question of which way the court is going to go in the next couple of terms that, um, you know, I think it's too controversial to make any headway. Thank you for that pessimistic uh, prediction, uh, which that cool-eyed, and you may well be right. But we will at least, uh, in our state of nature or state of Zoom, have a wonderful uh, test of the ability of the progressives and conservatives and libertarians to agree when they all reconvene at the NCC um, and virtually in just a few months and see if they can agree on the words of any amendments. Wilfred Codrington, we've got a bunch of questions in the chat about this question of the administrative state. Uh, Does one of these visions of the Constitution parallel what conservatives call the Constitution in exile, says David Solison. And and indeed, the Constitution in exile was a phrase used by uh, Judge uh, Doug Ginsburg, a friend of the NCC, to uh, describe the need to resurrect uh, limitations on the powers of the administrative state, such as the non-delegation doctrine and the limits on the commerce power that have been dormant since the New Deal. This is, as you heard Charles Kessler say, uh, uh, Wilfred Codrington, a very big issue for conservatives who think that the whole New Deal was illegitimate because it didn't have a formal constitutional amendment. And there's some real constituency on the Supreme Court for rolling it back. How does this particular battle over the scope of the administrative state and its constitutional legitimacy fit into your framework? And, and to what degree is the, 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 the expansion of the current administrative state, in your view, supported by popular movements uh, among progressives? Great. Yeah. And so I just want to quickly uh, respond just to give a little bit more of a hopeful look on this all. Um, I do think that there are amendments if we could get our sort of political house in order that the American people could rally behind. So you mentioned the Electoral College. The Electoral College is one of the two most proposed ideas for amending the Constitution. As you noted, it came very 
very close to becoming an amendment in the 1970s, except for a, a stalwart Southern segregationist a filibuster to stop it. It had 80% of the American people backing of it. Um, right now, we talked about, and actually it, it's it's interesting because Dr. Kessler um, talks about um, what might promote a crisis, and he mentions Supreme Court decisions as well. Uh, so it's we do have some more of an overlap there. And I think that one of those decisions we see that is universally reviled is Citizens United. And I think that unites progressives and conservatives alike. You know, there's a there's a smaller bandwidth of people who think that corporations should have unlimited sort of financial power and dominance and say in our elections. And then you noted the 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 Supreme Court decision uh, or the term limits on the Supreme Court. And I do think that that's gained some traction, though there are a, 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 a number of different proposals for restructuring it, thinking about the Supreme Court. Um, so I think that there's more optimism there. Hopefully we can kind of get to that. But in terms of um, the New Deal, I, I think that, you, you know, it does, it fits and it doesn't fit in our framework. And we sort of think about the four big periods of amending the Constitution. One was the founding era, largely the Bill of Rights in 11 and 12, Reconstruction era, the Progressive era, and the Civil Rights era. And then in the sort of this middle state, you get a few little staccato amendments, which is totally rare in, in constitutional history. And, and at that same time, you're also getting that informal change with FDR. So the idea there is that, you know, FDR certainly, as Dr. Kessler mentioned, had um, overwhelming power. So maybe he could have done something about it formally, but um, I, it seemed like he was confused as to what the actual proposed amendments might say and what they might do. He was a little bit um, worried that the Supreme Court that would ultimately have to interpret amendments would sort of continue along the Lochner era and the conservative sort of line of not giving power to the words of the Constitution. And, and so he kind of just took his chances with sort of popular democracy behind him and pushing for a more robust state to counteract what were what was the critical issue at the time, the Great Depression, but then into the the war, right? Um, and so you know, like that, and, and that that was uh, a fateful decision. There is a constitutional theorist, um, Stephen Griffin, I believe he's at um, at Tulane, and he just says, you know, maybe there would be more consensus on the power and the legitimacy of the administry and the New Deal if we were to have actually ratified the child labor amendment, which was um, symbolic of that period, what was going on, because the court was saying that the there was no power to regulate child labor. Um, and so, yes, we got to this period where we had this revolution that could have been a constitutional revolution in the formal sense. And what we ended up with is the sort of debated uh, administrative state, which we're still contesting today. What are the bounds of the sort of administrative and regulatory apparatus and the programs like social security and other things that sort of extend from that? And we're going to continue to have that debate. My, my hope is that what we can do is sort of terminate some of this debate with some amendments that will sort of solidify our understanding. That would be fantastic. But until then, we're going to continue having this debate with conservatives and progressives, um, um, attributing certain levels of legitimacy and illegitimacy to that period. Charles Kessler, would the conservative objections to the New Deal administrative state drop away if there had been a formal amendment? After all, FDR, you know, considered one and it might just as well have passed as not. Or is this a, a much more fundamental disagreement about the scope of federal power? And to that degree, how, how do um, you talk about different disagreements among conservatives? We know that conservative presidents have embraced rule by executive order and big government just as enthusiastically as uh, liberal uh, presidents have. So to what degree does, does that reality uh, coincide with the debate that's going on on the Supreme Court? Well, uh, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, there are disagreements among conservatives, uh, among originalists. I mean, people who call themselves um, uh, adherents to a, a jurisprudence of original intent don't all, uh, of course, agree about that. And there are some very interesting schisms, you might say, on the right uh, about how to interpret that. Um, if you take the issue, for example, of affirmative action, this is uh, this is a very interesting one on the right, I think, because 
even though Reagan campaigned against it and had the chance to sign an executive order uh, or to take other more substantive legislative action to try to uh, uh, cut it back or rein it in or constitutionalize it, you might say, um, he failed. He didn't do it. I mean, he didn't really try it. Um, and conservatives have been divided about it and what to do about it uh, for a long time since. But I think the general, um, you mentioned uh, Doug Ginsburg uh, and the Constitution in exile notion, and I think that's um, uh, very relevant to the discussion because from the old Constitution's point of view, or at least the conservative version of the old Constitution, um, what we have today is that the Congress and the administrative state are, are sitting as a kind of permanent constitutional convention, uh, able to, I mean, you don't pass the ERA, but you it, what, what legislative proposal has been turned down or what regulatory pro- proposal has been turned down because there isn't an ERA in the Congress, in the Constitution, none. I mean, basically, um, the, the administrative state goes ahead and tries things which would normally have been stopped by the lack of a constitutional provision to support them. Um, the existing separation of powers is a far secondary uh, consideration to wanting to get something done by the administrative state and, uh, uh, you know, by the, uh, the m- mostly the progressive um, coalitions that have have invented the administrative state and, and used it for a large uh, percentage of their lawmaking and rulemaking um, for many, many uh, decades now. Um, that, I think, uh, isn't going to go away. Uh, and it does argue against going through all of the trouble of a formal constitutional amendment process. When you can basically find a way to get what you want without having to go through the constitutional amendment process, uh, why go through it? Um, it's, it's, the, the condition is different in California, where, by the way, we, we talk about tectonic plates all the time <laughs> with a very different uh, actual uh, um, uh, point in mind. But um, in California, it's very easy to amend the California Constitution. We do it all the time. We do it every two years, basically. So there have been something like 500 amendments to the, to the California state constitution, the second California state constitution, the progressive one, the one that Hiram Johnson as governor um, uh, gave us. Um, and, and the result is that the constitution of California is a book. It's book length. I mean, it's about, depending on the size of the type, 250 pages, or I've seen it in a 500 page edition. It's a small book. Um, and it doesn't have anything like the moral authority that the short, the 4,500 4, words of the Constitution, and now a, a little bit longer, of course, because of the amendments, uh, has. And that was one of the reasons Madison wanted to make it difficult to amend, so that it would, be, it would not be um, uh, similar to statute law. It would be a higher law, a more fundamental law to control statute law and even to control popular majorities to some extent in the future. Um, I think that uh, in the current situation where we don't formally consider amendments very often because we don't consider the formal constitution all that relevant to what actually government is going can do and will do, um, we're in danger of losing some of the moral uh, high ground, some of the um, uh, the veneration of the Constitution that Madison and many others talked about as essential to, to keeping constitutional government as something different from the government that floating, ever-changing popular majorities or legislative majorities can enact. Uh, and uh, that, I think, would be the the comeback from, as it were, the the first constitution to the second constitution, that when this constant, when the the modern day constitution is essentially itself a product of the legislature or of the bureaucracy, um, it no longer has any majesty. It no longer has any um, moral weight, um, or at least not the same kind of majesty and moral weight that it. Uh, that Madison and Hamilton and Washington thought it needed 
uh, in a very robust democratic um, political uh, regime. Wilfred Codrington, Charles Kessler just suggested that uh, the administrative state and affirmative action are the product of the legislature and of the bureaucracy, not of the Constitution. And uh, I want to ask you about affirmative action, abortion, and gun rights. Now, next week, the Supreme Court is going to hear both the most important Second Amendment case of the term, as well as uh, the Texas abortion uh, challenge on an expedited basis. Conservatives say that abortion decisions and affirmative action decisions are um, reading into the Constitution rights that don't exist and thwarting the will of the people. Uh, Progressives uh, counter that um, it's the court that is imposing its own views and uh, uprooting precedents and striking down laws that are well-rooted in the Constitution. How, How does this debate, which is obviously the central one on the court uh, this term, fit into your account of constitutional history, mostly coming from uh, the bottom up? Yeah. So um, I don't think that um, the point of the book should be that there's not sort of rule by elite institutions. That's the nature of a government. And But what I do believe is that Um, Much of the Constitution was written in a way to have a little bit of play in the joints, to allow for government and the people to actually uh, express themselves and exercise themselves and, in fact, govern themselves. Right. So um, Dr. Kessler talked about uh, the Constitution being rather short. It is rather short for and, and, and rather long standing. And I think it's done a pretty good job. But. At various points, we saw that it didn't do the job well enough. So we added 40% more of the Constitution after the original Constitution was ratified. And that, of course, is through the 27 Amendments. Um, And so the things that are happening at the Supreme Court, they're going to happen at the Supreme Court. This is what the sort of idea was. We have, we're supposed to have an independent judiciary that carefully considers the the facts and the legal questions before them, those that are sort of governing or or sort of agitating people. And and you mentioned a few of them that are going to be hot button issues, perhaps affirmative action, definitely abortion in a couple different modes, a couple different cases, guns, right? And, and, And we have this sort of independent body that's supposed to make these decisions um, as to what the constitution contemplates and what it doesn't. We've had that happen throughout history. This is the point of McCulloch v. Maryland back in the 1800s when uh, Chief Justice Marshall said, hey, it may not specifically say in the Constitution that the Congress can charter a bank, but Congress has broad powers about sort of funding armies and, um, and regulating commerce in the economy. That is in the Constitution. And so we have to sort of be a little flexible what those means, because we don't want to have a a California type Constitution that spans uh, pages and pages and pages and tones in a book. What we want is something that we can work with. And when we can't work with, we amend it. But that gives the Supreme Court some ability to to make those interpretations on those important decisions. And as I said, when the Supreme Court gets it chiefly wrong, it has opened up paths for amendment in the past. And so perhaps that's what we'll be facing again. Um, But these hot button issues, I think, gives the Supreme Court more opportunity to sort of step in it, if you will, and and, and and motivate people from the bottom to push for amendments, motivate them and enforce them to have governing and elite institutions to, to implement them through constitutional amendment. Uh, Charles Kessler, I'm going to ask uh, you about abortion and guns and affirmative action, obviously the most controversial constitutional issues today, uh, to vastly oversimplify conservatives. Uh, some claim that overturning Roe, striking down affirmative action, and ensuring that the Second Amendment is not a second-class right is a way of resurrecting the original understanding of the Constitution. Um, Critics counter. um, There are originalist arguments against each of those positions, uh, and um, the conservatives are just imposing their policy preference through the court. How do you look at the debate? Well, I I don't know anyone who thinks that Roe v. Wade was a um, an, an excellent piece of 
of uh, judicial reasoning. Um, I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, many people, very intelligent law professors on the left have, have argued for many decades that this was a contrived opinion, hard to justify, uh, if not impossible to justify by normal legal reasoning. Uh, and so because our, our, what we refer to as our abortion law is really not a law, it's it's basically the writ of the Supreme Court from Roe v. Wade and in the ensuing cases that supported Roe over the years. So it would be nice um, from the point of view of the original Constitution that, that whatever the abortion regime is, it, it ought to be legal that is made by um, uh, legislatures or, and approved by the people in some way, whether that requires a constitutional amendment which is sort of the maximum case, or just 50 state legislatures determining what um, what they uh, uh, regard as uh, optional uh, or, or best in their state uh, on the question of abortion. Um, gun rights, um, I think, is also a, a case where, is a, is a slightly different case, where you do have a constitutional amendment, you have constitutional writ, um, and you can have a good argument back and forth about what the original meaning of it was. Um, although to me, it's for a couple of decades now, the, the scholarship on, on the part of the, the, so to speak, the larger gun rights argument indiv- as an individual right seems to have won the day. Uh, that seems to me, if, if, if that de- debate isn't over, um, it has certainly been going the conservatives way for a long time time, or at least a couple of decades. Um, and I don't think that, um, you know, given the, 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 the Second Amendment, if you, want to, if you want to circumscribe gun rights drastically, then you probably ought to amend the Second Amendment. Uh, you ought to um, uh, do it uh, in an above-board sort of way, which will n- never get anywhere, of course. But, it, but, you know, the Democratic Party platform in 2016, and as far as I know, in 2020 as well, although I haven't looked, um, called for amending the First Amendment to exclude Citizens United in cases like Citizens United, <clears throat> campaign finance cases, um, to, to, to indicate that speech and money are not the same thing and don't count as the same thing. Uh, in constitutional uh, in the in the constitutional uh, balance, um, which is uh, in its own way quite amazing. I mean, who would have thought that a, a uh, amending the First Amendment would be the official position in, uh, of a of a modern American political party? Amending it to circumscribe the coverage of the First Amendment of, of political speech in terms of political ads and so forth. But it is true by money. So, um, I, 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 you know, this is going to be interesting, uh, because it may in fact vindicate professor Cod- part of, at least of professor Codrington's point, which is if the court goes in a conservative direction on one or two or three of these issues, certainly pressures to override the court either by packing it or by amending the constitution to obviate the, the court's decision will increase uh, and I think he, if he, if that's his prediction, which I think it probably would be, I think that's right as far as it goes. I, although I remain skeptical that it will increase the pressure enough to actually result in anything constitutionally. Well, it's time for closing thoughts in this very rich discussion. And I'll just uh, ask for some uh, brief ones so we can end on time as we always do. And the question that I'm going to ask each of you is this. Um, if you had to identify a single constitutional amendment to increase the guardrails of democracy, what would it be? The, the, the Constitution Center has a initiative to try to bring together progressives, libertarians, and conservatives to identify potential reforms to increase the guardrails of democracy that have been eroded by polarization and technology. And I'm eager for your thoughts about what your amendment would be. Uh, and the first thought is to uh, Professor Codrington. Uh, Thank you, uh, Jeff, for that question. And thanks for the discussion. And thank you, Charles, for uh, being on the other end of this discussion with me. 
so uh, as I noted, it, this is probably going to be very hard because as I noted, our theory is that constitutional amendments tend to come in clusters. So I'm kind of thinking about it in clusters, but I would say if I had to choose, I would go with something that's going to bolster democracy. And that's either going to be a right to vote amendment. As you know, our constitution doesn't um, um, sort of positively guarantee a right to vote, but we have a robust anti-discrimination framework in our constitution that prohibits the right to uh, uh, prohibits discrimination in voting on the basis of race and sex and wealth and the like. Um, and so we don't have a robust like, right to vote. And if we look at what some states in the in the country have in their constitution, they look at their robust right to vote for free and fair elections to have gotten rid of political gerrymandering, for example, and to to uh, overturn laws relating to restrictive voting ID measures, for example. So I would add that that in there, or I might go with the Electoral College. And the Electoral College, again, as I said, is one of the most popular. We saw what has happened with the Electoral College recently. It is problematic twice in two, um, two decades. We've gotten Electoral College misfires that have given us what have been pretty poorly prepared presidents. And it also sort of gave us this opportunity at the end of an election for an insurrection to take place, this long period where they're contesting the results of the Electoral College outcome and sort of all the things that came with that in terms of starting an insurrection and legal shenanigans about how you sort of have a coup, those sorts of things. I do believe fundamentally that if we were to just have a popular vote in a normal transition, like most democracies do, we would not have been facing that, that sort of situation. So something that is definitely going to make our democracy more robust, more participatory, more inclusionary, and, and sort of reflect the real will of the people more. I think those are the ideas that uh, the, the, the original framers had in mind when they said that we're supposed to amend the Constitution seldomly, but for big ideas for things that are lacking. And Charles Kessler, the last word uh, is to you. If you had to identify a single constitutional amendment to protect the guardrails of our democratic republic, what would it be? Um, well, it would uh, it would not be uh, to uh, abolish the Electoral College. I'm a defender of the Electoral College. I think our problems really don't have much to do with it. Um, our uh, that is our problems in our elections. Um, I would say um, some version. Uh, I mean, one doesn't have to have amendments. You know, it's not a moral it's not moral commandment that one should be in favor of amendments. But if one is discussing um, the subject, I think an amendment that, uh, uh, would, I'm not sure term limits for judges is exactly the right term to use to describe it, but that would, um, um, spread out the nomination of justices, uh, federal justices over president over, you know, every president would get, uh, perhaps one or two nominations, um, uh, and, and so that you would have, uh, some some um, greater democratic influence uh, over time on the court and break up some of the sclerotic uh, power that the court has uh, drawn to itself, both in its liberal phases and in its conservative phases in the modern uh, era. I think that is probably uh, defensible. Uh, I also think, you know, something like Prop 209 which we had here in California and which survived a, uh, uh, an electoral test just in the, in the last election cycle here uh, to uh, forbid racial discrimination in government hiring and uh, in um, uh, college admissions and things like that. Um, I think that's, uh, I think that's advisable and that sounds like what a classic kind of constitutional amendment should do. Um, but beyond that, I, uh, I would have to th think long and hard about the other proposals of NCC uh, before I would uh, endorse any of them. But I think uh, those two ideas are, are, are good. And if, we're, if, if one could um, rescue the government, the Constitution from exile um, by constitutional amendment, I'd be interested in something that could restrict the power of the administrative state, too. I'm not sure exactly that that's possible, and if possible, what 
the amendment would actually say, but I'd be interested in hearing more about it. Thank you so much, uh, Wilfred Codrington and Charles Kassler, for a very rich discussion. Thanks for identifying those potential amendments ranging from a right to vote and electoral college amendment to a term limits and affirmative action amendment. Um, the NCC, of course, endorses none of these. Our, our role is just to convene people of different points of view, like both of you, for these thoughtful conversations and to explore areas of agreement and disagreement. And that's exactly what both of you have done with your extremely uh, rich and illuminating interventions. Thanks to you, friends, for taking an hour in the middle of your day to learn and grow together. It's so meaningful to uh, convene with you and to uh, live out the uh, exhortation of Justice Brandeis, come let us reason together. And that's exactly what we've been doing during this great hour. Charles Kessler, Gilfrey Codrigan, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, friends. See you all again soon. Thank you. Thanks, thank you. Bye. This episode was produced by John Guerra, Lana Ulrich, Tanea Topper, and me, Jackie McDermott. It was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team. We've hosted interesting initiatives on constitutional change, including our Constitution Drafting Project, in which teams of different viewpoints drafted their own constitutions. So if you're interested in more content on this topic, check out the Constitution Drafting Project on our special projects page at constitutioncenter.org debate. Also at constitutioncenter.org debate, you can register for our exciting programs coming up this fall. Check out the full lineup and register to join us virtually there. As always, we'll publish those programs on the podcast too, so stay tuned here, or watch the videos in our media library at constitutioncenter.org constitution. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify, and join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.